Welcome to Legal Ease Australia, presented by a layman and a lawyer. It's designed to demystify the legal process. It'll answer questions like, how do I buy a property? And what do I do if I get arrested? As well as featuring some of Melbourne's leading legal minds and most compelling cases. This is Legal Ease Australia. Welcome to the first episode of Legal Ease. My name is Tom Andronison. I'm the layman, and I'll be the one asking all the completely ill-informed questions. And uh, joining me is John Mellier. He's the lawyer in this conversation. He's principal at Mellier Lawyers. He's a barrister, a solicitor, and a member of the uh, Victorian Law Institute. G'day, Hello, John. Tom. How are you? Good. How are you going? Good. Thanks, Tom. That's good. So uh, today, this is the first episode of Legal Ease. This is, uh, I guess, your brainchild. What are you hoping that we'll achieve here? After 17 years of practice and um, helping many, many people over the years, I see a need for some sort of um, general advice or information for people to give them a, make them a bit more informed about what happens with the legal process and the law. So this is about uh, maybe asking some of the dumb questions, which I'll inevitably be asking of our guests over the series, but... Uh, I guess uh, giving people some insight as to what happens at, at the basic level of the law. Correct. Giving them some basic understanding so that they feel a bit more prepared when they go and seek some legal advice or assistance from a legal practitioner. So uh, just before we launch into that, a little bit about John Mellier. What's, what sort of law do you practice? I run a generalist practice out in Essendon, have done general practitioner work for the last 10 years and done other work prior to that. Basically, we do practice in the areas of family law, criminal law, wills, conveyancing and property, and any other general litigation that comes across. And a lot of people in the legal profession tend to specialise, but you are a generalist. Do you find that as a, a positive or a negative? I find it as a positive because I'm able to help a broader range of people, or if we're not able to, we can point them in the right direction. And I often refer people to experts in specialist areas who need to see them. And it's quite common for many generals to do that nowadays. And, and how long have you been doing this? Uh, 17 years, Tom. 17 years. You don't look that old. Uh, I've got the road scars <laughs> to show. <Yeah. laughs> and, um, you know, what is it that you like about it? I like being able to help people. And the biggest kick I get out of it is seeing uh, getting a good result or a fair result for a client. When you, when you go to study law or decide that you're going to be a lawyer, it's, I mean, it's a pretty high barrier to entry. Collectively, lawyers are generally the smartest people in the room. Are you, uh, you know, how do you how do you handle that? I mean, it's it's a pretty hard thing to access the law for laymen. It is, and I take a more down to earth approach with people. I'm very down to earth, and I like to try and explain things in layman's terms to clients yeah. so they understand. Whereas some like some colleagues might prefer the traditional. You know, we're lawyers, we're educated, we know more, don't ask questions, please don't ask us anything yeah. approach. That's their style, that's fine. Yeah. Um, I take a more um, down-to-earth approach trying to make people understand what's going to happen, how it's going to happen and how it's going to affect them. Yeah, because, I mean, there's a whole language of the law. That's right. It's got its own language, yeah. its own barriers, its own methods. Yeah, it's a completely different world to anybody uh who's outside of it, which I guess brings us to this podcast, you know, and the idea of, of demystifying um, some of the aspects of the law that people maybe interact with with most often. Today, we're talking conveyancing, covenants, contracts, and caveats, the four C's yep. of buying and selling property. Um, yep. Before we launch into that, what are you hoping are some of the things that people will take away from this well, episode? Well, some of the takeaways clearly will be that when they're buying or selling a property, 
they'll get some professional assistance, yep. whether it's advice from a legal practitioner or a conveyancer, mm-hmm. that they'll seek that advice to help either review something they're going to purchase or make sure that what they're going to sell complies with the requirements of the law, that they understand their rights when it comes to buying and selling, and finally, that they understand that it's one of the biggest purchases they're going to make in their life. Yeah. And they need to be across everything, not just the law, but also finance, mortgages and loans as well, because that can also be harrowing. From a seller's perspective, you need to have a contract of sale. Yeah. And what's called a Section 32. Now, everyone's heard when you're buying a property about this Section 32. Yeah. Section 32 talks about Section 32 of the Sale of Land Act 1962 in Victoria. It's a section that has a requirement that basically in a contract of sale attached to it is the Section 32 document which provides basic consumer information to a prospective buyer. Right. So it sets out things, for example, the title, the uh, restrictions that might be on the property, any planning restrictions or access, statutory charges, any building approvals, all those things have to be documented in the Section 32 so that the buyer has a better understanding of what they're going to buy. So if I'm the seller, um, at what point do I go and talk to a lawyer or a conveyancer about a Section 32? So what what will normally happen is a seller will engage an estate agent. The estate agent will give them a quote and a price and tell them, well, we need a contract and a section 32. Mm. At that point, if if that happens, that's when nine times out of 10, a client will come across and contact us to say, yeah. can you help us? Can you do the conveyancing? Can you do all that? And that's right. what happens. And for, I mean, I was a first home buyer a few years ago. And uh, I remember thinking two things as a buyer. The first one was, where do I find a lawyer? I have no idea who I would possibly use as a lawyer. And then I um, also thought, you know, given my extremely tight finances at the time, that a lawyer is going to cost me more than a conveyancer. Is is that the case? Look, at the moment, conveyances are still fairly cheap with some of the work that they do. Yeah. But the difference or the advantage with having a legal practitioner is that if something goes wrong or there's any legal issue or problem, we can deal with it. Yeah. Whereas a conveyancer cannot. Uh, so we're, we're the uh, the seller of a property, and we've engaged our lawyer or conveyancer to put together our section thirty two. What happens next? So what happens? The lawyer then takes proper instructions from the client, gets details and information, orders whatever material certificates that are required to be attached as section thirty two, and prepares and puts together the contract of sale and the section thirty two. He or she then gives a copy to the seller to make sure it's in accordance with the instructions and then that's handed to the estate agent. And if you're the seller and you have no idea what a contract is supposed to look like, do you just trust that your lawyer got it right? No, normally normally the lawyer will should explain to the client mm. uh, what things you're selling. For example, are you selling the fixtures and, f- and fittings? Yeah. Are you keeping the drapes? Are you putting the dishwasher in? Those sorts of things. <laughs> Has there been any renovation work in the last seven years? Mm. These are the sorts of things. These are the sorts of things you'll be getting instructions and asking them about and making sure that there are special condition terms in the contract that fit with what they want to do. It might be that the seller wants to settle in 90 days rather than the traditional 30 or 60 days. And those things need to be sorted out and put in the contract. So the contract of sale, including the Section 32, 
it sounds obvious, right? But these are the, the terms under which this property will be sold. Correct. Yeah. They are the terms and conditions under which the property will be sold. They are the terms and conditions that will bind both parties, the buyer and the seller in the transaction. And the material in the section 32 is what the purchaser is going to rely on. And if I'm the purchaser, um, do I have any rights or ability to amend any of that contract? So what happens is the purchaser would or should engage a legal practitioner as yeah. well or a conveyancer before they sign the contract to review the contract in Section 32 to make sure the special conditions are in order, to make sure that the terms are with what they want, to see if there's any hidden meanings or clauses that might catch them out. Do people put those in? They do, yes. Most oh. times, nine times out of ten, uh, a lot of lawyers will have special conditions that will change what's known as the general conditions. So so in the contract of sale, there are general conditions that are set out the basics. For yeah. example, when a deposit is to be paid during the process, and there will be special conditions that might alter these general conditions in favour of the seller. Right. So the purchaser needs to be aware of this you and have, have be, a look yeah. at them. Yeah, yeah you've got right. to look at it. So we've um, engaged our conveyancer and we've put together our uh, a contract of sale as the um, as the seller of the property. Is there anything else that a seller needs to do at that stage with their legal practitioner? No, they just need to make sure that they're happy with the Section 32 that's been provided in the contract, that they let their conveyancer or lawyer know they're happy with it mm. and sign off on it. Uh, covenants and easements. What what are they? So let's, let's what impact do they have? Let's let's go through some of those just just quickly in lay terms. But yeah. a covenant uh, is basically an agreement which creates an obligation contained in a deed on the land. So when you buy a property and there's a covenant on that land, you inherit that covenant. So there are a lot of covenants around the inner Melbourne properties that are sold. For example. You can't build two dwellings on the property, right? You, you're and only, these exist, do they? These still exist. You may, you can only build one dwelling, or if you build a dwelling in a development, there are set rules with the type of dwelling you can build. So these covenants need to be looked at and explained. So, for example, a purchaser might think, "I'm going to buy this property, say in Brunswick, and I'm going to put three or four townhouses on it." Mm. Yet there might be a restrictive covenant on there saying you can only build one or two dwellings on there in an original format. Right. And a lot of the original old covenants were when the land was dug up from quarries, yep. for example, and then brick dwellings were put on there, and, and etc. So those types of covenants are still there. And who sets those covenants? Those covenants are set originally by the original landowners oh. and the original developers and, and through the, um, the government. So, for example, local government? Uh, it might be the local government, but nine times out of ten, it will be either the developer or requirements that the local government or the planning authority might have. Uh -huh. And that's specially seen in housing developments in the states with Section 17, what they call Section 173 agreements. And a, a covenant is different to a caveat, right? Yes. So a caveat is basically a instrument where we give a warning or we say to somebody, hey, we've got an interest in this property. So what happens is... The Register of Titles receives a caveat request. The caveat gets lodged on the title. So when someone's buying a property or looking up a property, they'll see a caveat registered on there, on the title. Uh -huh. And that's a warning to the world to say, hey, I've got an interest in this property. So right. it might be, for example, you might be a beneficiary in an estate and there might be an issue where you don't get along with the executives or there's a dispute. So uh -huh. you might lodge a caveat or 
in a family law matter, you might be estranged from your husband or wife, vice versa, and one of them owns the family home, home so you'll put a caveat to protect your interests. Right. But caveats, you have to be careful. You have to have what's known as a cavitable interest. So there has to be either an agreement in writing some sort of contract or deed arrangement, yeah. or you have to have a proper interest. Otherwise, you can't just you can't just go around putting caveats on property <laughs> because someone owes you money. There yeah, has right. to be an actual agreement or judgment. Uh huh. And am I allowed in the contract of sale to say something like, "I'm really attached to this house and I don't want to see it bulldozed"? Therefore, there's a no. term in this contract. That no, says you, you can't, can't do that. It. No, you, you can't. can't. Right. No. So, so if if that's the case and you're particularly attached to the property, just don't sell it. Yeah. The <laughs> only way the only way I, there would be something like that, Tom, is if there was, for example. In the through the planning scheme, there might be a heritage listed yep. issue. So the yep. property's heritage heritage listed, you can't touch it. But that's been put in place by an authority, correct? Than not by an individual. individual. So yep. an individual, if they decide to sell their home, they sell their home. Yeah, right. So where do easements come into this as so well? So easements are a right held by one owner of the land over the other. So there has to be a dominant and subservient tenant. So right. basically. For example, you see a lot of these easements laneways uh-huh. where they're in between two properties. Common easements are for the water company with sewerage that are down at the back of the rear or at the front. Party walls, which are between two of the houses like in the suburbs, in the inner suburbs that are joined together, terrace houses. Yeah. They're the types of easements you would see. And the requirement is basically you're not allowed to build over an existing easement. So no matter what you do, you cannot build over that easement. You yeah. would think it's obvious, but it, there are situations where some people do, uh, unfortunately, will build over an easement. Yeah, and I think this is probably an easy um, an easy trap to fall into for maybe people who haven't done their due diligence on a property when they purchase it. Correct, that's right, and that's why you need to do your due diligence. Yeah, or well, you need to get your legal advisor to do your Correct. due diligence uh, for absolutely. you. Absolutely. <laughs> so um, maybe let's talk a little bit about, about buyers now. I'm sure you've bought property, I've bought property, plenty of people out there have or are looking to buy property. What are the steps that you need to take as a buyer or a prospective buyer when it comes to transacting land? Okay, so if you're a prospective buyer, one of the key things you should do is make sure you've got your finances in order yeah, (laughs) and that you understand the commitment you're going to make when you purchase a property or off the plan, etc. Yeah. Nine times out of 10, if you don't have that in order before you buy, you could be forced with a situation where you could sign a contract and say it's unconditional until you get your finance loan approved. If that lapses or you don't put that clause in and you don't have the finance, you're stuck with that that property and the consequences that flow. And that could be financially disastrous for you. Correct. You could be sued for breach of contract, pay interest penalties and costs, and lose your deposit. Yeah. (laughs) So so that's that's, that's a problem. Yeah. Buyers should also make sure they've got their deposit. The other thing buyers can do is make sure they get proper due diligence of the contract of sale under Section 32. Yeah. They must make sure that that happens to look at all the options in terms of special conditions that might change what your rights are under the general conditions or what there might be something missing in the Section 32. And do, I mean, it feels a little bit when you are in the market to buy property that the, the scales are tipped a little bit in the favour of the sellers and, uh, and agents. Is that the case? It depends on a number of factors. One, 
the way the contract's written and whether or not you can do your due diligence and during the negotiation process, organise to have certain clauses struck out right. or changed that yep. benefit mutually benefit both parties. But is that even possible? That is possible to do. Right. Ultimately, <laughs> as many times as I have advised potential buyers or prospective buyers, I recommend you don't do this, that they cross out this clause. It's your decision ultimately. Yeah. And they'll have to negotiate that through the agent. Right. It's their choice ultimately whether they're willing to forego that that legal advice and take the risk. Yeah. It's their choice. But yeah, that, right. that's that's all they can really do. And so going back to that 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 point though about the scales being tipped in the favor of of the seller, do do buyers have many rights in these yes. sorts of transactions? Yes, they do. So if there are issues where the vendor can't deliver the property at settlement with a clear title, then the purchaser will have the right to rescind the contract and get their deposit back or sue for damages if, the, if there are any. Yeah. If the Section 32 is defective in any way, it will allow a prospective purchaser to withdraw from the contract right. and not be bound by it. How do you prove a defect in a Section 32 though? So, for example, if in a Section 32 it's meant to be a planning certificate which sets out what the zoning is or the rights. Mm -hmm. If that's missing or the details are not correct, that's a defect. If there is a information that's not there regarding, say, um, statutory charges or other government issues affecting the land and your entitlement to use it when you buy, yeah. that's a defect. Right. And there's a number of other defects that you can, you know, we can go through and spend a, and another episode on. But there's just, just some of the ones we can talk about just, just to give a, a, an understanding. Right. And so, I mean, if there is one of those defects does arise, well, you know, what is- so, so the choices are the purchaser can either certainly withdraw mm -hmm. and rely on that to get out of the contract and the sale and but get I've, the deposit I've back. I've fallen in love with the house, John. Yeah, if you've fallen in love with the house, <laughs> you might try and negotiate with the vendor- Uh-huh you know, to reduce the price, et cetera, or that. But you could also try and look at issues regarding um, compensation. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, you have the right to withdraw from the contract and you should do that. Because yeah. once you go ahead and continue on, you limit your rights. Right. Um, what if a vendor presents the property for settlement in a different condition to what it Correct. was sold? So so I don't know if you've ever heard the expression, Tom, buyer beware. Yeah, I've heard it. So yeah. it's called, they say caveat emptor, but buyer beware. So this is a really hot tip for everybody. When you first inspect a property and you're going to purchase it and sign a contract, when you inspect it, make sure you turn on all the lights, turn all the switches, look at the oven in the kitchen, the dishwasher, make sure everything works. Because if there's an issue before settlement, you'll get a chance to have a final inspection before the settlement date. Yeah. If it's not in the same working condition as when you saw it, then we have the ability under the contract to set aside $5,000 or an agreed amount from the settlement to have those things fixed or repaired. But if you don't inspect it and it's you find it's like that when you go and have your final inspection, it's too late. You can't do anything about it. What if... Uh so this actually happened to me. We turned up at our final inspection for a house that we purchased and uh, there was a big hole in the ceiling. Okay. Now, 
Was the hole <laughs> was the hole in the ceiling before? No. no. So that's different. No. If that's if that's the case, that's got to be fixed. So that so the vendor has to repair that and has the runs the risk until settlement date. What if to, the to uh, produce it? What if the vendor refuses? Well, then you would have to, <laughs> and they refuse to hand over the money. You you would after settlement. You can't delay settlement. You would issue proceedings against them for the cost of the damages to repair it and any other costs that you've incurred. Gee, I wish I had a lawyer when I did this. <laughs> that's what that's what you would do. So what should have happened, Tom, is they should have kept about five thousand yeah. dollars aside under the contract from your settlement money, left in someone's trust account, either the conveyances or lawyers on one side or the other. Yeah. Until that's rectified and that money used to do that. And if not, you could have gone down the route of suing for damages. Well, there you go. There's a lesson there for everybody. Get a lawyer <laughs> when you're transacting property. Um, John, is there anything that we've missed here in this conversation? Yeah, there is. There's just one final, two final things that I want to make very clear, which people should understand. Yeah. When you buy a property under a private sale, not an auction, mm -hmm. you have three, and I'll repeat that, three clear business days to cool off. If you purchase a property at an auction, you have no rights to cool off. Uh-huh. You buy it, that's it. Oh, well, that's excellent. So some of the takeaways from um, from this episode of Legal Ease Australia, get advice. Get advice. That's yeah. the key one. Number one, get advice. Yeah. When in doubt, make sure you get someone to look over the contract or Section 32. If yep. you're buying, yep. if you're selling, make sure that you fulfill the requirements that you have to do under the legislation to sell the property. The next issue is to make sure that if you're buying at an auction, that's it. You don't get any cooling off rights. Uh -huh. If you're buying at a private sale, you get three clear business days to cool off. And finally, I would just make sure that you've got all your ducks in order in terms of finance. Thanks, John. Well done. Thanks, Tom. Uh, that's uh, John Melia who's a principal at Melia Lawyers and will be our, our regular, I guess, uh, legal expert on this program, Legal Ease podcast. Um, we must thank Greenslist Barristers for their support in putting this podcast together. And of course, we must put in a disclaimer that this is general advice only. And if you require specific advice or assistance, you should definitely contact a legal practitioner. And Tom, I'd like to thank the content engine as well for their help. <laughs> no worries. Thank you uh, for joining us uh, on Legal Ease Australia. We hope you learned something out of it and we look forward to speaking to you again soon.